So my name is David, and Laura and I have been coming along to Hope City now for not quite a year, and uh, really have appreciated the warmth and the welcome, and at this particular point, the opportunity to stand before you somewhat utterly lost. Um, and the reason for that would be the fact that uh, there's a lot of tech here, and so I want to make sure all the tech works, but most of all, I want to pray for God's Spirit to speak and pierce our hearts today. So let me begin in prayer. Father God, you are amazing. You are the, the source of all life, the source of freedom, the source that allows us to walk in grace, to walk in your spirit, and to walk in confidence. And I ask this in your son's most precious name. Amen. What's it like to be lost? Well, you know that momentary feeling where you're not quite sure, do I go left or right? Or am I actually on the right path at all? And sometimes it lasts for a minute, sometimes it lasts for actually a lot longer. Uh, sometimes you're unsure of the final destination that you might be heading for. I've experienced this feeling as I'm sure that you have as well. When we lived in Dundee, I had a friend on the Tayside Mountain Rescue, and we used to have these discussions about, okay, how does a really equipped hillwalker get lost, and what's her ways that they don't get lost? Because they've got the gear, they have the compass, they have the map, they've met on the mountain before, and yet, even all with all that preparation, a misjudgment, an overconfidence, a not looking at the map because of those things you can become utterly lost, and therefore they have to go out and rescue really well-equipped uh, hillwalkers. I think one of my greatest fears is that I'm going to get lost, mountain rescue is going to come, and they're going to wonder, why do you have hypothermia when you have all these extra layers in your rucksack? Because typically I carry all these layers so that I would not have that happen. But it's maybe a little better if I follow someone. This guy's out by himself, but maybe if I follow someone, that would be better. But I don't know about you, but I've walked with people who got lost. Unfortunately, I've led my family on walks where they have gotten lost, which has added miles and sometimes dangerous terrain uh, to our walk. So what about that? Well, you might say, well, the lesson to learn is don't go to the Karen Gorms with David or anybody else. Just avoid going out and getting lost, and that would be great. But the problem is it's not just in, in uh, geography. There's also culture. Laura and I have had the opportunity to live in four different countries with four very distinct cultures and languages, and I include Scots in that. The issue is that you don't know the rules, you don't know what to do, and you feel lost. You can read all the books, you can study the language, and yet you still make cultural mistakes. You're lost in that setting, and it's a horrible feeling to be utterly lost. It's a hopeless feeling often at times. However, what if you have a guide? What if there's somebody in front of you who actually is an expert and knows the features of the terrain and both the physical and the cultural? Someone who promises not to leave us, that they will always be with us. Then we'll have the peace and the assurance that we're always on the right path if we listen to them. But does that sound too good to be true? It's not. It's exactly what Paul, our writer, has been talking about in his letter to the Galatians, and it's just as true now as it was for those first century Christians. You'll remember that we've been studying about uh, how Paul wrote to this group of Christ followers in Galatia, that, which is now in modern-day Turkey. Paul heard that there were others uh, who had come with a different view and had given them a different teaching. And then you'll also, he points, that was trying to point them back to the Jewish law, that which had enslaved them. 
this is not what he taught them, and he wants to remind them of how they began in grace and how they are free now from the law. He's moving closer to answer a question that he posed in chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. I would like uh, to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works or of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? But I've gotten ahead of myself. That's not today's text. I think I probably need to back up a minute. So I'm going to ask if Ruth will come and read our passage for us today. And uh, it'd be easy to find, page 1172. And now I have to remember where the microphone is. There you go, Ruth. Thanks. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Yeah, we can just set that one. Just making sure I had it on the right slide when it was going on there. So, Pat and Matt, over the last couple of weeks, have set the stage for the conclusion of this section of the letter. They've talked about how to live or to walk by the Spirit, and Pat offers us some practical suggestions for that. And then last week, Matt talked about the fruit of the Spirit, that virtue or character that comes out of that indwelling Spirit when we allow us to be transformed by that seed he talked about, this power of transformation if we allow that to grow over the time. So today we're just going to look at these three verses. This part begins with an amazing phrase, those who belong to Christ Jesus. Wow, how, how can he write that with such confidence? And is it possible to live your life with that confidence that I actually belong to Christ Jesus? Well, the belonging kind of indicates a couple of things that we've picked up on here. It can be a really good thing. You can belong in a, a marriage to each other. You can belong in a family. That's often positive. Not always, but often positive. You can belong to a really cool club, I guess. That would, that would make you feel like belonging. But there's also perhaps a horrible meaning of belonging, which is human slavery, the fact that you actually are a possession and seen as just that. But whichever way that you look at this, this phrase begs two questions to me. The first is, how does one belong to Christ Jesus? And the second is more personal, do I belong to Christ Jesus? Those two questions, I think, will frame what we're going to talk about today, and then also what the promises are with that belonging. And so, according to the answer uh, that comes through that, Paul, let's jump back early in the letter, because I believe he builds his case for what he's trying to do as he walks through this. How does one belong to Jesus? This is Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. So, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ Jesus lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. He reminds us that it's through Christ's death on the cross that, uh, in, that we now live. This claim he does in faith, 
faith that we also have the opportunity to believe in. And he also points out that if it was by the law, Christ died for nothing. What a horrible waste that someone would have died, and yet there is actually no outcome from that. So to belong to Christ, we must accept that His life, death, and resurrection really happened, and that it was for me and for all humanity. The sentence continues, though, with the phrase, have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. What does this mean? Is this, uh, and what's the difference between pa- uh, passions and desires? We talked a little bit maybe in, as we were prepping, and Pat gave a good suggestion that passion sometimes is that which, um, which is a reaction to what happens to me, and then uh, that perhaps a desire is something that I well up inside and I want. I want to grab. So, so those two external, internal factors that would move us. But still, it doesn't really necessarily help us with the fact of that he's saying this concept of crucify the flesh. And also the fact that this is something I think in Christian jargon often gets referred to as the now but not yet. This concept of that something has happened in the past, okay, and it affects my now, but I'm not quite to the finish. So, There's a lot of illustrations for this, and none of them are great, and mine's probably not going to be world-changing, but I'm going to try to help you with this. Crucify the flesh, this aspect of, is there an ongoing action with this? So, my grandmother loved all her grandchildren. I got to tell you, she was fantastic. And when she passed away in 1997, there were lots of jokes among us grandkids. And the reason was, she had a very particular legacy. The legacy was that at that moment, when she passed away, you received half of your inheritance. The other half was put into a trust. And we're kind of looking at each other like, I don't know really what that means. But the lawyer explained it to us that at age 50, you would get another quarter, and at age 55, you would get the remainder. So the joke was, did she think we were going to blow it? I mean, really, this is just kind of insane. So, but, you know, you don't think about it. I had years till I was going to turn 50. Every year, a paper came from the bank. I doodly filed it away, never thought about it. Why? Because it wasn't my money. It had no impact on what was going to happen at that point. So then in 2009, our two oldest daughters decide that they're going to get married within 27 days of each other in two different countries. I just got to tell you, as a father of four daughters, that really is a bit overwhelming. They chose the same year to do that. And so we took wise counsel. We didn't necessarily look at our bank accounts, but we... We felt like we needed to promise them each an equal amount, which we did, had that conversation. And then, literally, today is my brother's birthday, my oldest brother, who was turning 55. I called to wish him a happy birthday, so this is 12 years ago, and he says, don't forget Gammy's money. That's what we called her. And I said, oh yeah, I'm turning 50 in six months, two months before the weddings. So what do I do? I rush back to my folders, find the paper, pull it out. What we had promised was exactly 50% of what the balance was. The now, but the not yet. The promise that future funds were coming did not prevent us from struggling sometimes with finances and having to be careful all those years. And then I also turned to my two younger daughters and said, sorry, you got to wait five years. No, I didn't do that. (laughs) They were quite young at that point, so I was okay. Um, And yet, there is this aspect of the now and the not yet. And I do believe that that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. This aspect of crucifying the fleshly desires, those things that I want to do that hurt me and hurt others, 
That's what fleshly desires and passions are in their basis aspect. And I appreciate the prayer of confession that we've already heard this morning. That is a great example of the things that we do that hurt others and ourselves. Well, the crucifixion as it was practiced by the Romans was intended to be a cruel and lingering death. But there was no doubt that the, that the prisoner would die. They left guards there because the only way that they wouldn't die is if somebody took them down. In the same way, Paul sees these Galatians trying to take back the law, take back what has already been done for them, the promise, and therefore try to continue to fulfill a law that they could not keep. And therefore, they are in this, he says, let them stay there. That's what he says to us, let them stay there. But... As a dangerous animal who's received a mortal wound, that animal can still strike out. And that's what fleshly desires and passions can do to damage us in our life, even though the ultimate uh, decision is taken care of. So, why does Paul assume that belonging to Christ Jesus means that we have the Spirit living in us? Because this is where he continues. He says, since we live by the Spirit... Yet, uh, let us keep uh, in step with the Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So he's assuming that. Well, I have to look back earlier into the letter to once again find the proof for why we have the Spirit living in us if we belong to Christ Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 14, it says, He redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promises. In Galatians chapter 4, verses uh, 6 and 7, Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are His child, God has made you also an heir. Because you are an heir, you have the promise of the Spirit. We've talked about the Spirit a lot, however, in the last few weeks. and we, It's a concept in Christianity that sometimes is the hardest to put our finger on. So you can be forgiven if it's been a little confusing. So I want to take a few moments just to talk about who the Spirit is and what He does, as offered to hopefully help us with that. But first of all, we have to recognize that He's part of a trinity, Father the Creator, the Son, who brings salvation, and the Spirit, who was promised by Jesus so that He would come to us. He's also mentioned um, in almost, almost every book of the Bible. I tried to figure out exactly how many I was trying to count, and sometimes that's hard to do, but almost every book mentions the Spirit of God. He has existed through history. That's one of the things that I thought was really important, and that includes past, present, and future So, in the beginning of history, in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now uh, Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The Spirit was present in creation and is powerful. In the middle of history, this would be, as best we understand it, John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, um, John records this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. This is a moment in time where Jesus is teaching, and there's a promise the Spirit will come, and that Spirit then comes in the book that we have been studying in the fall, and we'll pick up again the book of Acts, where we see the record of all that coming of the Spirit and the works and the power of the Spirit. John describes the Spirit as a promise, the promise of the Spirit, which was fulfilled after Jesus' death, resurrection, and then the return to heaven. And then we'll also see the Spirit at the end of history. This is Revelation chapter 22, verses 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. The Spirit's at the end of history, joining with the bride, which is a common analogy for the church, and inviting everyone to accept the free gift of life. So what does the Spirit do? Well, there are a few names that sometimes describe that. He's called the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's considered a good Spirit because He gives fruit. We read that last week and studied that. And he also gives gifts. That's in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. He's called the Lord. In fact, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all referred to as Lord. Uh, the Spirit is referred to that in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17. But the one you probably have heard the most is a Greek word called paraclete the advocate or helper. In this role, this is the things the Spirit is attributed for doing in the New Testament. He is our helper. He guides our prayers. He comforts us. He convicts us of sin. He makes us holy. He teaches and directs us. He empowers us. These are amazing promises to those who belong to Christ Jesus. There's lots of other names as well, but there doesn't seem to be any doubt in Paul's mind that those who belong to Christ Jesus have the Spirit. It's not a separation. It comes at the transformation when they believed what they had been taught, they received the Spirit. But there is a problem with walking in the Spirit or walking in step with the Spirit because the Galatians have failed to do this according to Paul. Much of my thinking uh, over the last years has been shaped by a friend of mine. His name was Steve Smith. Uh, Steve and I both went to university and Bible college together, although I didn't meet him until much later. He did church planting in inner city um, L.A. and then went uh, to East Asia to serve as a missionary. And during that time, he became uh, a witness of the amazing movement of the Spirit and church planting all over East Asia, and then he began to train. But as he came back and talked to hundreds and thousands of workers, he always came back to this concept of being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit. He passed away of cancer in 2019, and this was the last book he published a few months before he died, which basically encapsulates that concept of how do you walk with the Spirit. He sums it up in this. He says, it is a spirit walk is an unpredictable path with predictable steps. No two of us are going to walk the same path 
However, there are predictable steps when we walk in spirit. Philip Ryken talks about the aspect of that this is a military definition of walk in step with the spirit. That's, that's the Greek is for that, that when you see soldiers marching in step or even running in step, that that would be the concept that he is talking about here. Um, and so he talks about the fact of four different steps in that. And it's called surrender, wait, avoid, pursue, called swap. And I thought, you know, I'm not really going to try to teach you something new today. I realize that I'm in Scotland, and I've got a really good opportunity to pick up on something you already have heard and can probably sing the song from the Green Code. My children learned this in Dundee as they went to primary school. There was this whole concept. If you're not familiar, if you're from another culture, let me explain. It is how you walk across a street. You stop, you look, you listen, you think, and then it should be safe to walk. Okay? That's simple. So I've taken the steps, the predictable steps, because there's nothing unique to how Steve put them into an acrostic and have applied them to something that hopefully will be a little easier for us to remember. So let me begin uh, with what that might look like. Stop. And I'm going to personalize this because I think that's what we have to do with the Scripture. It always comes out of our own walk before we can share with anyone else. I need to take time daily, as well as more extended times on a weekly or a monthly or an annual basis, to focus specifically on what God is teaching me about His will and His Spirit and His direction for my life. There are so many patterns uh, that I've used and that others can provide for you that are effective but none of them are effective if you don't stop and use them. I have to stop. And then I have to look. I have to study the Bible. I have to look, submit to what His Word and His will are showing me about His life. Because it's not just about reading His Word. It's about being willing to do what His Word is telling me, what His Spirit is prompting me to do. I have to surrender uh, when Steve talks about this, he talks about in Romania that there was no word for the word commit. We love the word commit in the West. I'd like you to commit to this, commit to that. We often use it even in, I'd like you to commit to Christ. But he said, actually, this Romanian pastor challenged him and said, we don't have that word. The only word we have is surrender. And it's a much better word. Because that means I've let go of control. When I read God's word with the filter of surrender, then that means that I am willing and more likely to do what the Spirit is telling me to do, even though it rarely seems to make sense in the moment. So I need to look at it with that filter. I need to listen in, uh, to the Spirit through prayer. Prayer includes more than me telling God. It's not my laundry list of all the things I need Him to do. That's part of prayer, but it's not the only thing in prayer. There's a lot of listening reflecting, journaling, all of these are helps for me as I attune my ear to how the Spirit speaks to me. Will it be audible? That's always a question that comes to us. Your path is different than mine. I don't know how God speaks to you, how He affirms that, but I do know that the Spirit speaks to us and that we need to listen in prayer. But what often happens in that is waiting because the responses don't come quickly. Sometimes they do, but not often. So I need to have perseverance and be willing to wait for the answer. I need to think. 
I need to think about what these disciplines are telling me about my desires and passions, the things that I do that hurt me and those around me. Remember, Paul says to crucify them, leave them there. But how? By confessing them and letting God root them out and by going to others and to make things right. That's the act of confession, of depth, of making things right. And then the fruit of the Spirit will grow in their place. I've made space for it. I've cleared the weeds so it has growth potential. And then I need to avoid these passions uh, and desires in the future. And after I do these steps, I can pursue walking in step with the Spirit in confidence. Now, the lollipop man or lady are not always there. They're only there at the most dangerous crossings, the ones closest to the school, where there's the highest potential. But yet, you teach your children to cross the roads, all roads, no matter where you are. Now, I have to admit, uh, if the cars come from a different direction, it does add to the challenge of this. And I have to admit that in a minute, you'll hear a, a brief story. But when I mentioned walking in community, I think one of the things that uh, is noticeable about this passage is that Paul moves from I to we. He's talking about walking in step in a community. The community is a church, a body of believers, those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's us. And so as we look at this, trying to walk with someone is hard. I'm taller than Laura. We have different strides. For us to walk side by side is really difficult. For me to walk directly behind her is excruciating if you're taller and have a longer stride. But walking in step is a military skill they must learn. In fact, they have to learn to run together in formation, always ready. And they can't decide, if you're in the middle, where you're going to go. That's up to the people who are up in the front. But this aspect of going together. I think Paul then in verse 26 points out one last thing. This is the last piece we'll pull from this passage. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. I think one of the things is that Paul talks about this is really hard to run or walk together in a community. And I think he describes three common hindrances to walking together. So let's look at them. Um, There's the me-focused. I get lost when I think I know it all and I wander from the guide in the path. That's what happened uh, in Edinburgh, one of the early times I came with a friend from the States, he'd gotten off the plane at 6 a.m. Uh, we go down to Princess Street. I think we're in front of Jenner's. You know, you got the Scott Monument just across the way. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of pointing out this and that. And next thing I know is that I hear kind of a, a gasp and a scream. And um, he has not looked the right way. And he steps out into the road to which a lovely little old Scottish lady grabs him and pulls him right back up on the curb, and this bus goes right by. And here's what she says. You Americans, you're always walking with your hidden clothes. <laughs> That's what happens to us. We get our heads in the clouds, and we trip. We walk into dangerous places. We get off the path. But also, there's the conflict focus, the provoking. How have I... Oh, sorry, those are my friends kind of up there lost on the mountain. Okay, so me-focused, conflict-focused. I don't know how many times when I'm in intense conversation, by the way, provoking means I provoked them, or it could be that they provoked me. There's just this aggression going on, and this happens often that when I'm driving the car and I'm in an intense conversation, I will not say who's in the car with me, um, although Google Maps has helped our marriage. 
that you missed the turn because you were so intent on winning the argument. You get off the path because of the provoking and the being provoked, and we've been distracted, and this happens in the church. And this is what he's warning the Galatians. And then the last is other-focused, envying. I just wish I was on anybody else's path in the path I'm on. I desperately want what you have when I see you walking with God. And therefore, I envy what you have rather than celebrating what God has done for me and what He will do for me. So, what do most experts say when you're lost in the woods, lost in the mountains? Stop, sit down, and wait for help. The most counterintuitive thing in the world, because I want to fix it, I want to get back to the right path. But what often happens is you get even farther lost and farther confused. And so, there is this opportunity that we must sit down and look at it. So, there's two kinds of lost I want us to think about this morning as we close. First, if you are far from God, which I believe is lost, and have never understood how to have faith in Him, then today... I pray the day would be the day that you would find him through the Spirit. But there's a second kind of lost. Perhaps you're a believer who has all the instruments, the spiritual maps, the compass, the GPS, which is in our spiritual world, prayer, Bible study, Christian community, that points you in the right direction, but you still feel lost because you need to walk in step with the Spirit. You need to pursue the promptings of the things that he's telling you. No matter which path you are on, I want to give you time to stop this morning, to sit down and to wait for help. Instead of talking with others during this time, sometimes we discuss a question. I just want it to be you and God. Nobody's going to ask you for the answer here. You can write it down on your tablet or your phone or a piece of paper or maybe just take an image of it and look at it later. But the question is, do I belong to Christ? Three possible answers. Not yet. In faith, write a prayer asking Jesus to forgive your sins, and the promised Spirit will come to you. And then speak to one of us today. We would love to guide you in that process. Perhaps it's yes. Then write down how you will keep in the Spirit this week. A very practical step from the ones that we've talked about. And then perhaps you're still unsure. Then write down what you intend uh, to do with that. What will you do? While you're doing that, I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and play for a few minutes, but I'm going to pray for you first. Father God, I ask that what we have looked at, what you have promised, will become real today in our hearts. It's in your son's name we ask it. Amen.